Hi everyone, my name is JC and I'll be reading scripture for us today from Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 4 and 9 to 14. Verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Good morning, everyone. If you do not know me, my name is Yen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, send us your spirit. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by telling you a story about a royal figure in recent history. His name is Jigme Singye Wangchuk. He was the ruler of his small country from 1972 to 2006. And during his reign, he was an immensely popular king. His reforms and policies helped progress his country from being a third world nation to becoming economically and agriculturally self-sustaining. Under his rule, the people became healthier, they lived longer and more prosperous. At the age of 43, at the height of his popularity, he did something unthinkable to most other kings. Under no compulsion from anybody else, he issued a royal edict to deliberately limit his own power as king. Now, why did he do that? At that point in his time, his country, Bhutan, was an absolute monarchy. And the king of Bhutan had absolute power over everyone in the nation. Now, the people of Bhutan did not mind this. The past few kings were popular and were considered good kings in the eyes of the people. But for Jigme Singye Wangchuk, he knew that what was in the best interest long-term of his people was to transition the country away from being an absolute monarchy there's something more of a democracy. So in 1998, the king declared a royal edict to hold elections so that a cabinet of elected leaders without royal blood can share the power and responsibility of governing Bhutan together with him. In the same edict, he changed the laws of the land 
such that at any time, if two-thirds the people in the country voted to do so, the king can be voted out of the throne by his people. And these two changes alone shocked the whole country. But the king was not done yet. Transitioning a country from a monarchy to a democracy will take time. And it will take eight years before a formal constitution was completed and presented to the people, setting in stone the democratic principles which will govern the country, including the laws about how power will be distributed between the king and the parliament, and how the parliament leaders will be elected. And shortly after this constitution was completed, the king shocked his people one more time. This time, he willingly stepped down from the throne and passed the royal crown over to his eldest son, at that point in time was 24 years old, and currently the current king of Bhutan. This announcement shocked the Bhutanese people, as the king was at that point in time 51 years old, was very healthy, and was very, very popular. So the reporters asked him this question, why? Why did you step down from the throne? And this was his reply. He said, usually, a king is removed under one of two circumstances. Either a violent revolution has taken place, or the incumbent king has passed away. In the former, the nation will be in turmoil. In the latter, the nation will be grieving. Either situation is an unstable time for a country. It will pose challenges to the new and incoming leader. Therefore, the best time to transition to a new leader is a time like now, when the country, country is enjoying peace and stability. Jingmei Singye Wangchuk is a rare figure in human history. Here was a monarch, a king. He held absolute power over his people, but he willingly gave up his rights and his powers, eventually stepping down from a throne, all because he felt that doing so would best serve his people. It was almost a paradox. In order to be a good king, he would give up his kingship. Last week, in the sermon on Esther chapter 4, we heard Z preach that Esther also did something similar. She was a good queen who was willing to take great personal risk, even the risk of death, for the sake of protecting her own people. When we arrive in chapter 5 of Esther, we have reached the first climax point in the story. Here's a brief recap of events which has brought us here. A high-ranking official in the Persian government, Haman, has planned for a genocide of all the Jewish people in Persia. And this massacre was to be executed on an auspicious date about 11 months away. Mordecai, a Jewish official in the Persian government, heard about this and he urged Queen Esther, who also happens to be his younger cousin, who also is a Jew, to request the king of Persia, Asahurus, to intervene and stop Haman's plans. The problem was that according to the laws of Persia, if anybody, even the queen, approached the king without being summoned, the law allows for the king to send the person away to be executed, if the king so pleases. And whether or not the person approaching the throne would be granted favour by the king not to be executed was symbolised by the gesture of the king holding out his golden scepter to that person. And this is where we are in the story of Esther in chapter 5, the first climax point of the story. Will Queen Esther obtain the king's favour 
or will she get executed for insolence? As we read in verse 2, the answer is yes. Indeed, Esther has won the favor of the king, and she's allowed to present her request. But surprisingly to us, the reader, there is an unexpected delay. Instead of telling the king outright about Haman and his plan to kill the Jews, Esther instead invites the king and Haman to a feast. The king and Haman attended this first feast, and the king asked Queen Esther, what is your request of me? And again, Esther delays the real request, invites the king and Haman again to a second feast. Now, why? Why did Esther do this? Why did she delay her request by preparing two consecutive feasts instead of asking the king outright? The Bible never gives us the real answer to this. Commentators have speculated the possible reasons why. It could be it's the custom of that era. It could be that because Esther wanted to talk to the king in private without other officials present. Or it could be because Esther wanted to get the king full of food and marry with wine first. Any of these could be true. But the fact of the matter is that we don't know the real reason. But despite so, allow me to draw two observations to this text. First, there is a deliberate attempt by the author of Esther to compare this event with what, happens, with what happened in chapter 1. If you remember what happened in chapter 1, there was not just one, but there were two feasts. And during the second feast, the king and his officials were merry and drunk with wine. In the middle of that second feast, the queen said something unexpected by the king, resulting in terrible consequences to the king. This time, too, there will not just be one, but two feasts. As we shall see two chapters later, the king, his official, was also drunk with wine. And in the middle of that second feast, the queen also said something unexpected by the, queen, the king. I think what the author of the book of Esther is doing is building up dramatic tension in the story. What will King Asahurus say to Esther? What will happen to Esther? Will she share a fate similar to that of Vashti? And that's the first observation. The second observation is that while Esther delays asking the new king, new developments take place in the stories of Haman and Mordecai in the second half of chapter 5 and the entire chapter 6, which Aaron will preach to us next week. These developments in the story need to take place because they set up the details for the final climax, which happens in chapter 7, which Joseph will preach to us the week after the next. So please stay tuned and join us the next two weeks as we come closer to the climax of the story of Esther. And at the same time, please do keep Aaron and Joseph in your prayers as we prepare to bring you God's word. As we turn to Esther chapter 5, the first half of this chapter ends with Esther's invitation to the second feast. In the second half, we turn our attention to Haman. But before we go there, let me share with you a second story about another royal figure in recent history. In 1997, when I was still in secondary school, there was a cartoon musical movie called Anastasia. I loved this movie very much. My family bought the soundtrack CD. Until now, I can still remember the songs of that CD. The songs were so good that later on, this movie will be adapted to be a Broadway musical. But what's the story of the movie Anastasia? The story is of the youngest princess of the last king of Russia, Tsar Nicholas II. The story goes that the princess managed to escape the palace while the rest of the royal family died during the Russian Revolution. Now, having lost her memory, the princess grew up poor 
living in an orphanage, totally unaware of her royal heritage. Now, this story was loosely based upon what happened in real life. During the revolution, the bodies of the royal family were so badly burned that people could not recognize and identify who really died. And there was indeed such a person who claimed to be the escaped Princess Anastasia, who was found in a mental asylum four years after the royal family was killed. And this lady had physical features which resembled the princess, was able to give accounts of what palace life was like. So many people believed she was indeed Princess Anastasia, the last surviving member of the Russian royal family. But many Russians also did not believe her. And whether or not she was really the princess would be argued and debated and disputed all the way until her death, 62 years later. A few years after she has passed away, DNA tests were finally done to close this mystery. The DNA test proved once and for all that this lady was unrelated to Tsar Nicholas and the royal family. She was an imposter. For 62 years, she had claimed, and maybe she even believed, that she was royalty. But she was not. In Esther chapter 5, Haman did not claim to be royalty the same way that this Russian lady did. But he certainly desired to be treated like one. And he also felt that he deserved to be treated as one. Let's take a closer look at the text. In verse 9, Haman just finished the first feast prepared by Esther. He was joyful and glad of heart. But that changed the moment he saw Mordecai. Why? Because as it says here in the Bible, Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before Haman. If you recall back in chapter 3, the king had a decree for all the king's servants to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But Mordecai refused because he was a Jew and he would only bow down before the Jewish god Yahweh. But if you look here in chapter 5, verse 9, Haman was angry not just because Mordecai did not bow down, which he should have expected by now, but because Mordecai did not tremble before him. Haman wanted Mordecai not just to show deference to him, he wanted Mordecai to fear him. Haman felt that he deserved this. He felt he deserved to be treated like royalty. He deserved to be feared. And when neither was given to him, he felt that he was not given the recognition and adulation he deserved. And he got angry. So what did he do next? In verse 10, he gathered his wife and his friends. He gave a recount of the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions he received from the king, until how he is now the second most powerful man in Persia, even the fact that he and nobody else was invited to attend the feast prepared by Queen Esther together with the king. What is Haman doing here? And many commentators say that he is bragging, as revealing the pride that is in his heart. And that is definitely true. But I also think that that's not the full picture here. Remember, Haman is doing this because he's angry. He's angry that he did not get Mordecai to give him the respect and acknowledgement he feels he deserves. So he gathers an audience and proclaims to them, see how worthy I am. Look at my riches. Look at my qualifications. Look at my achievements. Are these not glorious? Do I not deserve respect and adoration? Why does Mordecai refuse to give me what I deserve? In verse 13, he says, all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. 
It's interesting, isn't it? All these things which Haman takes pride in, his riches, his number of sons, his achievements, his accolades, all these things pale in comparison to what he really wants. Respect, adoration. If he doesn't get respect and adoration, these things are no good to him. This is interesting to me for at least two reasons. The first reason is this. Haman is not grateful for all the good things he has in his life. At no point does Haman give thanks to any god for his good fortune, or even to his king who has shown favor to him and promoted him. He believes he deserves it. He believes he deserves all of it. And we believe we deserve things. We are not grateful for them. You see, we are only grateful for things which we know we do not deserve, things which are given to us out of grace. And that's the first thing I find interesting. The second one is this. Now, why can't a man just be content with his wealth, his position, and all the good things he already possesses? Can't he just ignore Mordecai and go along and enjoy his life? What is so important to him to get Mordecai to show deference? And I think the answer to that is the question Ah, sorry, the answer to that question is the innermost desires of Haman's heart is to be seen and treated like royalty, to be like a king. He wants to be seen and treated like he's better than normal, mere mortals, that he is better than plebeians, that he is someone special. He deserves to be treated like someone special. And until he gets that from everybody, he cannot be content. The next verse, verse 14, his wife and his friends hear him ranting and they suggest a way for him to soothe his anger. Build a gallows 50 cubits high. I did the math and that's about five stories tall. And tomorrow morning, go tell the king to hang Mordecai upon this tall and large public display of execution. Don't wait 11 months later then kill him. Kill him tomorrow and kill him in the most publicly shameful way. And after you got rid of Mordecai, you can happily attend Esther's second feast. Now, Haman liked this idea, so that very night he ordered the five stories high gallows to be built. There's actually a lot of irony in this verse alone. And let me give you two reasons why. The first reason has to do with the author reminding us that Haman still has to attend Esther's second feast. We, the readers, know that Esther is planning something of a trap for Haman. But Haman is clueless, and he thinks that Esther is showing him honor by inviting him to a feast. The second reason has got to do with Haman's wife, Zeresh. Note that Zeresh is only mentioned twice in this paragraph, and she never appears again in any other book, any part of the book of Esther. And why is this detail significant? Let's go back to the end of chapter 1, where Prince Mamukan, who was also, also only mentioned twice, then never again. Prince Mamukan influenced King Asahurus to send out a royal decree for all women to give honor to their husbands. If you recall Z's sermon about four weeks ago, he said the irony of this royal decree was that it revealed that it was not only was King Asahurus indeed unable to rule over his wife, the fact that he did not know how to do, what to do about it, and listen to an insignificant character show that he is not as sovereign and not as kingly as he thought he is. It is the same irony with Haman here. 
He did not know what to do with Mordecai, and he listened to a less significant character in the story. But not only that, that character was his wife, which was there was already a royal decree for wives to listen to their husbands and not the other way around. Both these reasons point to one ironic fact. Haman thinks he deserves to be treated like a king, but he is no king. Like the Russian lady who pretended to be a princess, Haman is an imposter. He is a fake king. And he demands to be treated like royalty. But if you demand to be treated like royalty, but you are in fact not one, what is your fate? For Anna Anderson, the Russian lady who claimed to be Princess Anastasia, she will go down in history as one of the most shameful royal imposters of all time. But as for Haman, to spoil the story a little bit, Haman eventually gets hanged on the same five-story gallows he built for Mordecai. Haman wanted those who didn't treat him like royalty to die a public shameful death. The irony was that Haman himself was the one who deserved to die a public shameful death. When we zoom out a little and look at the entire of Esther chapter 5, we see the author contrasting the actions and plans of Esther against the actions and plans of Haman. It is therefore easy to conclude that the moral of the lesson is for us to be like Esther, don't be like Haman. Indeed, that's how many of us Christians teach our children the story of Esther in Sunday school. But actually, that would be the wrong conclusion to draw from this story. We have much, much, much more in common in Haman than we do with Esther. See, whenever we get upset with people because we don't get our way, we have a little Haman inside of us. Whenever we get upset with someone because we felt that we deserve more respect from them than what they have given us, we have a little Haman inside of us. Whenever we complain about how people don't acknowledge us for the hard work we've put in and what we don't have, or what we don't, sorry, I don't know what I wrote, okay, we have a little Haman inside of us. Whenever we fail to see that so many good things in our lives are gifts from God that we do not deserve, we fail to be grateful with a little Haman inside of us. And whenever we are tempted to treat other people either as tools to be used or obstacles to be removed for the sake of our own success, we don't just have a little, we have a lot of Haman inside of us. All of us in our flesh, in some way or another, desire to be treated like royalty, myself included. All of us in our flesh might even be tempted to think we deserve to be treated like royalty, myself included. But in and of ourselves, we are not royals. I contrast this to how chapter 5 describes Esther. In verse 1, she's described as wearing royal robes. In the Hebrew, it literally says she puts on royalty. In verse 2, the author calls Esther Queen Esther. And this is significant because this is the first time the author addresses her as queen in the whole book. Previously, she was just called Esther by the author. And lastly, from chapter 5 onwards, Esther stops taking instructions from people and starts giving instructions to other people, which they follow. In fact, if you look at verse 5, Haman himself was commanded to follow Esther's request. 
as Z mentioned in the previous sermon, the author is trying to say something when we reach the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. It is as though the author is saying, from this point onwards, Esther finally becomes a true queen. Chapter 5 is the true coronation of Queen Esther. What does all this emphasis on royalty, on being a true royal, signify in this text? A small clue comes at the very beginning of the first verse of this chapter. On the third day. Esther and her servants fasted for three days before she put into action her plan. And this is one, one commentator noticed this about this duration of three days. There is a pattern in the Old Testament where it starts off with a deadly and existential threat, followed by a duration of waiting for three days, and, a, and then followed by unexpected or divine deliverance. This pattern can be seen in the story of Abraham. When God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, the journey took three days. At the end of that journey, an angel appeared and Isaac was spared. The story of Jacob. Jacob had a three-day head start to flee from Laban with Rachel. And just before Laban caught up with Jacob, God appeared before Laban in a dream, telling Laban not to harm them. And most famously, the story of Jonah. He was in the belly of a fish for three days before he was miraculously vomited out alive. Here in the story of Esther, the entire Jewish race was facing genocide. Esther fasts for three days before she takes action to stop this genocide. But what does this pattern of deadly threat, waiting for three days, divine deliverance, mean in the Old Testament? I think this pattern exists because it points towards the most important three-day gap in history, the one revealed in the New Testament, where Jesus died on the cross, remained dead for three days, but on the third day, he defeated death and rose again. And this is why when we read this text, we cannot see ourselves as Esther. In and of ourselves, we are not royalty. In fact, every time we sin, we are telling God, we don't want to do things your way. We want to do things my way. Every time we sin, like Haman, we are demanding God to treat us like royalty when we are in fact not. And just like Haman, what we deserve is a public and shameful and eternal death. In his great mercy and love for us, God provided a way out, which is the true king, Jesus Christ. Similar to the king of Bhutan, he loved his people so much Christ willingly left his seat on the throne in heaven to come down to earth, incarnated as a helpless and vulnerable human baby. But even more than that, despite being king, Christ took on the punishment of our sins, the punishment we so rightfully deserve for being like a man. And this punishment was his most public and shameful death on the cross. Christ was the true and better Esther. But the story does not end there. Three days later, Christ rose from the grave, defeating death, showing the full implications of what it means to be his disciples. And what are these full implications? Romans chapter 3, verse 22 says, that if we put our faith in Jesus, we obtain the righteousness of God. And one metaphor that the Bible uses to describe this righteousness that we obtain from God is the metaphor of wearing clothes. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 10 says, 
For he clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. You see, just like Esther who steps in the throne room before King Asahurus, one day we too will stand in the throne room before the king of the universe, God himself. On that day, we find favor in his sight. If we come before him naked, exposing our sinfulness to God, showing him the haman we have inside, that we will not find favor between a holy and just God, and we will perish. But if, like Queen Esther, we come before him clothed in royal robes, before us instead it is the robes of righteousness given to us by Christ, then on that day God will hold out his golden scepter to us and say, Because you have been made holy by Christ, my favor rests upon you, and you are allowed to remain in my presence. But that's not even the best part. Do you know what the best part is? John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, that is, Christ, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God. When we put our faith in Christ, we do not just get permission to enter in the presence of God and but even better, we gain the status of being a child of God. We are adopted in God's family. In Romans 8 verse 17 says that if you are God's children, then we are heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see, when we become children of God, we put our name down in God's will to receive in his inheritance. This inheritance we share with the true King, Jesus Christ. This, my friends, means that we have become part of the royal family. We share in the royal inheritance. And this is perhaps the most important paradox in the universe. Earlier I said that if we demand to be treated like royalty, but when we are not, then what we deserve is death. But in Christ, the opposite is also true. If we decide no longer to live as kings and queens of our own lives, we instead instead decide to live as slaves and servants for one true King Jesus Christ, then what we get in return is the gift of royalty. This is the paradox. Only when we give up pursuing royalty, that is when we obtain it. Only when we give up pursuing the good life on our own terms, that is when we truly obtain the true good life. Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Friends, let me close by addressing those of you who have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that you are here today and that you have made time to listen to this message. Allow me to read to you a parable from Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. From verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but it would not come. We jump to verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went on to the roads and gathered all they found, both good and bad. 
So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, the king of the universe is calling you to attend this royal wedding. Do you have your wedding garments ready? Will you be clothed in the royal robes of Christ? If not, please heed the call of Christ. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Stop desiring to be the king and queen of your own life. Stop pursuing the good life on your own terms. Recognize and believe that Jesus is the true king. Pledge to no longer serve yourself, but to serve Christ. And then, Christ will clothe you with the wedding garments you need to attend the royal wedding. This is the only way to not get thrown out and cast into the outer darkness, to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Deny yourself and acknowledge Christ as king. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of prayer, the amazing ability to have access to the creator king of the universe. It was only made possible through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Help us to grow appreciation of what it costs for Jesus to pay that price. Grow our love and our gratitude for you. Help us in our struggle to not give in to our fleshly pride, but instead turn us towards Christ and stir up our desire to only serve Christ and to do good works. We pray for the COVID situation here in Singapore and around the world. We pray that in your mercy you keep the loss of lives to a minimum and that you bless our leaders with wisdom on how to make good and balanced decisions to determine what measures will best fit the circumstances. We also pray that no matter what the situation, Christians will take the opportunity to love and serve others well, showing the beauty of Christ in their lives. We also pray for the Christmas Eve outreach service that we have planned for the end of the year. We pray that you bring people to come and hear the gospel proclaimed in their lives, and for OCC church members to have the courage and the love to actively engage our non-Christian friends to show up for this event. Finally, we pray for the church. We pray for you to continue to guide the process of voting of, in of our elders and the subsequent ordination service. We pray also that you will grant wisdom, guidance, and faith to the church leaders as they begin to make plans for 2022, that you will remind them that this is your church. You are always in charge. Your plans are always good. You only call them to be faithful servants. Please continue to encourage and protect them and their families. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.